0: Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is the 8th of January, 2012, and our guest tonight is David Risher, the co-founder of World Reader. Hi, David. Hey, Steve. How's it going? Really well. I'm really delighted that you've come on the show. Can't wait to talk to you about this fascinating program. The Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project, thanks to Mighty Bell and Blackboard Collaborate for support. The Hack Your Education Tour that I was on this fall is done, but there's lots to tell about uh, holding conversations about learning outside of the normal ways that we do so. So look for that coming up. Also coming up this year, many more virtual conferences. Last year we had about 100,000 virtual attendees. The recordings are all up for each of those virtual conferences. They are free, thanks to great sponsors. Uh, A lot of fun this year will be a School Leadership Summit in March, the STEM XCon, sponsored by HP. It looks like we're going to move that to July. Reform Symposium, conference number four in May, and a worldwide homeschool conference, also in May. Coming up on the future of education, tomorrow night we're doing a brainstorm on Google Plus communities and educational networks. Uh, this is of some real significance, uh, in part because it's becoming so easy to build peer-to-peer virtual communities that uh, this is a skill that I think increasingly educators are going to value. So we'll talk about Google Plus itself, some of the positives and the shortcomings, and also other platforms, including Mighty Bell, which we'll talk about in just a second. On the 17th, uh, we're going to have a great show on student journalism. Um, on the 29th, Gary Obermeyer comes to talk about Deming. This is the first time we're, gonna, we're, we're going to have talked about Deming and I cannot wait to do so. Uh, Deming was the uh, gentleman who went to Japan, largely responsible for post-World War II quality there, not well-known in the U.S. or as well-known, but has a lot to tell us about the use of data, trusting employees, and uh, quality overall. Uh, Steven Bezruchka on economic inequality. Uh, This is a topic that really needs to get talked about in education. Carol Black comes back to talk about Occupy Your Brain. New on this list, Laura Weldon will talk about free-range learning. Howard Rheingold and his team talk about peer learning, what he's calling peeragogy. Paul Thomas to talk about poverty and the corporate takeover of education. Maurice Gibbons on self directed learning. Gavin Dykes on student voice. New in the schedule, Roger Shank on cognitive science and learning. Coming back again, brilliant uh, discussions with him. We're going to talk about virtual book clubs with Ben Rimes, who's running one right now that's fairly well known. And Jay Cross will come to talk about his book, Informal Learning. Lots more on the schedule. Some some great names. Committed, but not on the calendar yet, so we'll have a lot of fun. If you have missed any of our shows, they are all recorded. Jim Knight was just brilliant the other night. Um, we We were talking about instruction, but what we were really talking about was the parallel learning that takes place at all levels of the of the education world, from student to teacher to administrator to parent. Adam Fry uh, came on to talk about uh, the commercialization and of education in ed tech, uh, lots of fun. Cal Newport was back. Uh, anyway, lots of recorded sessions. I think we're up to close to 350, all available at futureofeducation.com. So this is a chance for those of you in our studio audience to tell us where you're listening from. Feel free to click on the star to the left of the map. You have to click twice and then click on the map. I'm in Park City, Utah, where we've just received a winter storm warning, so for the next couple of days we're hoping to get some rain. Look, there's a couple in New Zealand. Feel free to, to place in the chat your location. At least we have a couple of international guests for a topic that's international. That's nice, David. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: wonderful. Great to see people from yeah. all around the world.
1: It looks like Argentina, you say. Oh, yeah, wonderful.
0: Very fun. Wherever you're listening from and those listening to the recording, we thank you for doing so. There is a mighty bell space for tonight's show. Mighty Bell is the community content curation project uh, from Gina Bianchini, and I'm going to put that link in the chat right now. And feel free to continue the conversation there. I really like Mighty Bell. Full disclosure is that I do get paid by them, but it's a great project, and Gina Bianchini was one of the co-founders of Ning, and she does a great job. So, David, it was really fun to, to learn about you. Uh, there were some overlap and ties and connections. I'm sure if we drilled down, the six degrees of separation would, would shortly become one or two degrees. Um, do you want to give a little bit of a brief background on your own work and then what's led you to the, uh, this particular project? Sure.
1: And, in fact, let me do this. Let me turn on my video real briefly, Steve, so you guys can see me. Terrific. <laughs> I'm actually here in the Bay Area right now. Although, uh, as some of you know, I started Worldreader. actually, you know what? Maybe, Steve, it might be fun for me to tell you a little bit about kind of how Worldreader got started, and then uh, and then we can sort of leap into the the presentation
0: itself if that works. That would be great. In fact, we have an Ecuador tie because uh, our son went and worked at an orphanage in Ecuador for three months. So I think that's where you, that's well, that's the story I've heard. Right. That's, that's exactly it, that's
1: exactly it. So my family and I, in fact I was interested to see you doing a segment on homeschooling because my family and I spent a year traveling around the world where we, uh, we road schooled our two daughters and uh, we spent some time in China teaching English there, some time in Vietnam, some time in uh, Australia, uh, time in New Zealand, I see a couple of folks from New Zealand here uh, both in Christchurch and also in, uh, in Auckland and then sort of worked our way back around the globe and eventually found ourselves in Ecuador. And I'll just tell the story very quickly. We were at at an orphanage there and had spent the day uh, giving out towels and and sort of basic materials. And At the end of the day, uh, we were walking towards the exit and I saw a building with a big padlock on it. And I asked the woman uh, what was going on and she said, well, that's our library. And I asked, well, tell me what's going on with the, with the padlock. And, and in fact, I could see books kind of piled up behind the, the windows and so forth. And she said, well, you know, the books take a long time to get here. By the time they get here, they're often out of date. And the kids have lost interest in what's going on there. And, uh, and so I said, well, well, gosh, can we take a quick look inside? And she looked at me and she said, you know, David, I think we've lost the key." And that, for me, really was the moment, thinking about the, the role the books had had uh, when I was growing up and I would go to the library, you know, my mom would go to the grocery store and she'd drop me off at the library, uh, or, you know, I studied literature, comparative literature at Princeton, uh, or I had worked for, for Microsoft first for many years, but then Amazon That it was just a tiny little bookstore. All these things kind of came together for me, and I realized, well, this is something that I can I can do something about, and that's really where the idea of World Reader, that uh, we want to put digital books in the hands of kids everywhere, kind of came into focus for me.
0: So there are so many commonalities with our stories. You just got on a better track than I did, because I had a similar experience <laughs> in Nepal with a guy at a school. I went out to visit a rural school of a fellow who often attends these sessions, and he showed me his library and i asked the very question which was how long do these books last mm-hmm. and he said you know we're lucky because of weathering if they last more than 3 years that's my recollection of what he said right. and then we, he and i began to talk about the you know the value of a, of an e-reader and then i think i mentioned in my email i actually on the flight back was sitting next to a guy from amazon who has okay. some association with kindle and i said you know Gosh, this would be a really cool project. And he said, right. "Well, I think we're, I think we're doing it." Was that a name you recognized?
1: I, I didn't know the name. I didn't know the name. But you know, the difference there is, I was very lucky. You know, I had uh, hired many of the people on the Kindle team, and so you know, instead of instead of my having to sit next to someone on an airplane by chance, I could actually call the guy up who ran Kindle and said, "Hey." how about if you, you, you make a small donation to us to help us get started? And um, it took about six months. And he said, you know, David, we don't really have a line item on our budget for, you know, donating Kindles for you to use in in sub-Saharan Africa or whatever. But after about six months, they began to really understand that e-readers, because they're light, because they're portable, because they don't take much energy, and because they can get books from anywhere, you know, to anywhere on the planet, really could be transformational in the developing world. So that's how it all kind of... That's how it all came together. But sometimes it's better to be lucky than smart, you know, and, and I was i was lucky that I had that
0: experience to draw on. So I'm in big trouble. Neither lucky or smart. I, I mean, you know, what am I going to do? Well, so it was very interesting for me to look through the material because I i came at it with this sense of, oh, this is kind of a slam dunk, right? E-book readers, the, the magic of technology. And then the more I read, the more I sort of made mental notes of the various hurdles that you would have to get past to get to a place of having this project go large. Now, I also, a couple of weeks ago, met Nicholas Negroponte. And I think probably your paths have crossed, I'm guessing, many times, and and sort of uh, maybe some comparable difficulties. but But the significant difference for me is the simplicity of the idea right that the the you you grew up reading i grew up reading incredibly transformative practice being able to read and a device that just does reading seems like that as a starting place probably really makes things easier i think that's right i mean you know our idea is that we really for
1: the first time in history can create a world where everyone has the books that uh, that he or she needs to improve uh, his or her life. I often say her life because frankly it makes often a bigger difference even to girls than to than the boys. And uh, you know, we could talk about the the, the comparison of, with the One Lop Top for Job program. I've met Nicholas and he and I have, have gotten a chance to talk about this. But I think you're right. I think the simplicity of it, even though there are hurdles and, and, and those hurdles are significant, You know, it's not easy to start a project which involves technology and, and maybe even more fundamentally that asks people to change their behavior. But but in the end, I think we've had a lot of success. We've gotten uh, fairly big very quickly, in part because of the simplicity of the idea, the basic truth that, uh, that frankly, reading is good and that, and that more reading is better. And there are a lot of people in the world who understand that. And the technology just becomes sort of an enabler to that. It's not, the, it's not really the center of living.
0: Well, I've developed kind of a personal philosophy with regard to technology, which is, if the time spent figuring out the technology exceeds the value back, then you're, you're probably not getting somewhere you want to go, right? So the value of a simplistic ebook reader is that it gets you reading fairly quickly. You, know, you probably don't have to spend a lot of time on the tech. However, you've got electricity, you have wear and tear on the Kindles, you have licensing, you have government issues. Uh, I just bought an e-book from Kindle the other day. and. Uh, I saw that there was tax on it, and I thought, well, this is interesting. I didn't, ex- I didn't think I got taxed, so then I went to Amazon and sort of read the fine print, and the taxing depends on the publisher, and I thought, this is a fairly sophisticated thing that has to take place, right? Every book with separate licensing, and you certainly deal with that.
1: That's right. That's right. But you know what's interesting is that that is complex, and of course, you know, if it were easy, you know, it would have already been done. But at the same time, there are, there are real opportunities there too. For example, when we talk to publishers about those those sorts of issues, uh, it gives us the opportunity to say, well, hold on, you know, how many Hardy Boys books, uh, or Nancy Drew books, or Magic Tree books, or atlases, or uh, Warhorse. You know, these are all books that are in our program now. How many of those are you selling in Ghana or Kenya or Uganda or Tanzania or Malawi or Ethiopia or South Africa? And and they say, well, you know, let me spend a little time researching that for you. And and you know, I sort of say, well, look, you know, let me save you the trouble. <laughs> I mean, the chances are you're not selling very many at all. And so, because the cost to you is zero, to allow us to use that book. And because the cannibalization risk is, is zero because your sales are so small in those markets, you should be willing to give us those books to use in our program for free. And so that very complexity, you know, that the relationship you have to have with the publisher where you explain what we're doing and we're trying to put digital books in the hands of millions and millions of kids, but it also is an opportunity for us to sort of say, you know, let's do this in a way that doesn't cost uh, you anything and has potentially huge, huge impact on the world. So I want to
0: give you a chance to go through your slides, because we're getting questions in the chat from people who are interested in some specifics, and I think rather than address those now, let's let you kind of talk through the program, and then see what questions are that come up after that.
1: That sounds great. That sounds great. And what I'll do, I see, see some of those questions streaming by, and they're a great question. I'm going to turn the video off, uh, just so I can focus on the screen, and so can you. Uh, but maybe I can turn it on later when we do some questions and answers. And, and I'll go through this fairly quickly I mean, you know, we've already touched on a couple of issues but I, I just want to give people a bit of context for what it is we're, we're, we're doing. This first slide here to me, this is actually a picture I took at a library in Ghana, is uh, sort of emblematic of the problem we're trying to solve. You know, we've lived in a world now for 500 years where, where books haven't gotten to some of the most deserving, some of the neediest people in the world. For very basic reasons, for reasons of infrastructure and uh, physical infrastructure, uh, and, and, and this, this is actually a picture of a library, and it, it's actually a very nice building, you know, and has, has a nice desk in it and, and so forth. But of course, what's missing are the books, and it's, it's a very, very common story. In fact, this—I mentioned this is a picture I took myself. This is the only time I've been in this library, despite having been uh, to Accra, Ghana, many times. It's usually locked up, and the reason it's locked up is because uh, there's no books in there, and therefore there's no interest in what's going on. So this is the problem we're trying to solve. Uh, and we're trying to solve it because there are hundreds of millions of children who who have very very few books uh, in their classroom in their home. You know, the average number of books in a in a in home in Africa is three. This is from Sub-Saharan Africa. And uh, and half of the classrooms there have uh, either no books or, or children have to share books, and and this is a problem that we can solve now, and we can solve it using technology, which is becoming less expensive every day, and more ubiquitous every day. You know, both Ghana and Kenya have 80% cell phone penetration rates. Uh, you know, they're, they're, some people estimate there are more cell phones in the world than there are toothbrushes right now. So. So, so with cell phone technology becoming so ubiquitous and e-leaders, again, which can be used outside, uh, which don't take very much power, and we can talk about keeping them charged and so forth, but at the end of the day, you can charge them for an hour and they'll last for a month or so. And connect up to the cell phone network. All of these pieces, as they come together, begin to help us create a world that's, that's a very different world from the one uh, that, that, um, that these kids have had to grow up in so far. This is, by the way, a picture of our kids in Kenya. We have uh, programs uh, in a number of different countries, in sub-Saharan Africa. So I'll tell you, really, oh, and, and of course I should mention that, that these are distributed all wirelessly. You know, some through Wi-Fi and some over the cell phone network, and and it's done in very much the same way that, that you would buy a book um, here in the United States. We use some special technology to uh, so that we don't have to pay for those books, but but that's the same uh, that's the same idea. So. Let me just spend a couple minutes kind of giving you the basics on how it works and, and where we are. And I'll, I'll kind of run through uh, the program a little bit. This is uh, this is actually 817 Kindles. This is a picture we took just two weeks ago. Uh, this is a, of our, our operations center in San Francisco, which is where I am. Um, some of these Kindles, these are Kindles we actually just bought. Uh, these are all going to, uh, to a new program in, in Ghana. But we also get donated Kindles. Amazon has given us. Uh, now almost 2,000 Kindles, uh, but, uh, but we also buy quite a few, and then we uh, we send them to to Africa. You know, typically we load them up in the United States, although some of the loading is done there in Africa as well. This is a picture. This is actually of our first program, almost two years ago, uh, and at the time it was the largest order of Kindles that Amazon had ever fulfilled outside the United States, which was a whole crazy process in and of itself, which it's I'll. I'll explain if we have time. But anyway, we, we shipped them into Africa, actually using a very low-price contract we have through uh, through DHL. Um, this is a picture of us setting them up. Again, this was two years ago. Um, I can date it in part because I had a hair back then. But this was a, a, a school, um, a private school actually, that lent us their facility to do the setup. Uh, it was actually Thanksgiving Day, so the school was closed because it's an American school, but we used it to set the Kindles up. And we put hundreds of books on each of the Kindles. And again, I'll come back to what those books are in a couple of seconds. And then we go into the communities. And we, we bring the community together. Uh, this is a very, very important part of the program. It's not just us working directly with kids. Uh, it's really us involving an entire community in each of our programs. And in fact, this meeting was, a, was early one Sunday morning. And I'll tell you a quick story. The, the, the priest who kind of runs the church where this community meeting happened and where we kind of explained the the program, stood up at the end and he said, you know, we have this terrible uh, saying in Africa, which is, if you want to hide money from a black man, you put it in a book because he will never find it there. And when he said that, the whole audience got very, very quiet. And he said, you guys are going to help us uh, solve that problem. And that's its actually very interesting that, that we've now been in this community for almost two years. We've lost a grand total of five out of the 500 Kindles that we have in this community. And I think in part it's because the community understands so deeply the power of education and the importance of, of what we're doing and they really look out for, for what we're doing. So again, I'll just skip through a couple of slides here to give you a sense of what it actually looks like. So this is now when, when we're in the classroom. Uh, this, again, this is actually our first program ever in Ghana. Uh, these are sixth-grade students, and they're reading *Curious George* uh, on these Kindles. And you'll see that, uh, which, of course, is a, a book that's younger than what you might expect them to be reading. But uh, they typically start reading in English at about fourth grade in Ghana, and so they're reading level a little bit below what you what you might otherwise expect. I'll tell you a funny story about this classroom. This classroom, actually, as you can see in the background. It's in a place called Ayenia Ghana, which is a couple of hours outside the capital. But you you see that there's some books there. When I first went into the classroom, I picked one of those books up off the shelf, and one of the books I picked up was the History of Utah, which again sort of shows some of the problems that we've created for ourselves over over the years, is that even when we do get books. To parts of the world that could that could use them, often they're not the right books or the books that nobody else wants or cast-off books, or what have you. Anyway, these kids are reading, and and literally within you know two minutes, back to your point, Steve, within a couple of minutes of picking up the device, they know how to use it. We've we we of course train the teachers and we train the students, but but in truth, you know many of these students have used cell phones before, and uh, and and the technology just isn't very complicated, and so that allows people to get right to the important part, which is. Uh, which is the reading, and I've got I've got plenty of great stories about about what that feels like. But I will tell you that it's pretty astonishing to watch the children read, and then have them look up and say, "Can we have another book?" And uh, and you say, "Yeah, sure, let's download another." And that's just such a dramatic difference from from what they're used to of, of maybe having to wait six months or more for, uh, for for a new book to come. The last thing I'll say in this kind of section is that the books were we're putting on the e-readers are a combination of uh, some U.S. and European books. I mentioned Nancy Drew and Royal Dahl's books and, and uh, Atlas and Guinness Book of World Records and so forth. But we also now have hundreds of African titles as well. We've now worked, and this gets back to your point Steve, about how this is a bit of a complicated project. We've worked with about 30 different African publishers so far to have them uh, contribute books to our program and we pay the, the publishers for them, but we paid them about a dollar a book, which of course is, is less than the, the price of a, a printed book. Uh, but we recently wrote a check to an African publisher named Longham for about $10,000, which is absolutely fantastic for them. And it's very important for us that we support the local African publishers, but thank you that, that we also give the, the, the children uh, books that they're used to reading uh, and that their teachers want them to read. So you'll see books there in Kiswahili, uh, some books in English. We also have textbooks. We've got most of the Canadian textbooks, many other Kenyan textbooks as well, two of the bigger countries where we work. So we, we, we really try to spend quite a lot of energy making sure that we're we're putting books on the list that the kids really, uh, really want. And this is what it looks like. This is one of our programs. This is actually over in Kenya. Uh, this is actually our, our third program that we're running now uh, just outside of, of Nairobi. So let me pause here for a second. And just note that we're at about 3,000 kids and 200,000 e-books. And maybe, Steve, you probably have some questions, or maybe I can take some of the questions and scroll by, and then we can kind of continue on if that if that works.
0: Yeah. In fact, I would love to, uh, Jenny is desperate to know about uh, the, the funding here. But before we go to that, quickly, I do think you've got a, a cell phone app program, right?
1: We do. We do. And, and this was one of the early decisions we made, is that, and again, it, it's, it's maybe a different path than the one laptop per child path, uh, which was uh, I would characterize as very much sort of a, a, a kind of technology-driven project at least to start. Whereas we've taken more of a content-driven approach. So our view is technology is going to change, it's going to evolve. Already, the e-readers we use today are three generations beyond uh, the ones we started using. You know, those those early white ones that you saw a couple of slides ago. And then we also have a cell phone app. And the, the cell phone app is actually much bigger than the e-reader program. Um, but it's also earlier. It's more of a beta test for us. We have about 500,000 uh, people reading on the cell phone app all around the world. And they're reading many of the same books uh, that we have available in the e-reader program. The biggest uh, country there actually is India. And the second biggest is Nigeria, uh, then South Africa, then Ethiopia. And then we have several uh, Latin American countries that are represented as well, although most of our uh, uh, content is in, is in English so far. So we're, we're sort of device agnostic. We start with e-readers because we think they're great for long-form reading and they work very well in the classroom. But we know at the end of the day you know, more people will have cell phones than will have e-readers and so we really want to be able to, uh,
0: to be on both platforms. So Jenny, hang on. We're going to get to the financial. Um, David, what, how much of the learning processes you've watched the kids pick up these readers and begin to use them? How much of the learning is peer to peer, and how much do they? Um, how much do they need instruction? I haven't asked that question. Well, let me rephrase it. Over the course of time, do you find that there's a lot of interaction between the students themselves, or how much do they need to be guided by the teacher? So that's a great question,
1: and uh, it, it changes very quickly. So at first. Uh, you know, the kids look to the teacher for, for, for guidance and for leadership. But uh, very quickly, just be A, because kids are curious and, and smart, and B, because we encourage this, uh, they they move beyond the teacher. So I'll say, I'll say a couple of things to this topic. First, we decided early on that we didn't want these e-readers to be thought of as precious devices that got locked up uh, in the school. Instead, we encouraged the kids to take them home. And so, and they do. In fact, later in the presentation, I've got some pictures of kids literally walking through the market, uh, pictures that we took as we were finishing lunch one day, actually. And, and, and then we went to some of the kids' homes and saw where they read uh, and did their homework at home. Um, so my point here is that the kids very quickly begin to think of these as their own device, uh, even though uh, officially they're school property or, or reader property. We encourage the students to think of them as their own uh, and, and be responsible for them. And consequently what happens is they not only read to themselves, they read to their brothers and sisters. They read to their parents. In fact, an amazing moment is talking to the parents and having the parents, many of whom are not literate themselves because they grew up at a time where there was really very little schooling, uh, tell us, that my kids are reading to me at night, which is just an incredible sort of inversion from what you, you typically think in many cases. Uh, and then they, and they teach each other. You know, uh, now they're textbooks, and so the textbooks uh, on the, in the program, of course, that's used in the school setting, and that's the teacher standing up in front of the students and using them just like a, any other book. But very quickly, the students teach each other and, and work with each other, because at the end of the day, it's just a book, it's just reading, and the technology really is not, there's just not that much to it. So, you know, in about two minutes, you know, I can I can teach you how to use a Kindle, and you know, of course, you already know, but you know, anyone can teach anyone else how to use an e-reader pretty fast.
0: Do you think that Sugata Mitra and Nicholas Negroponte are onto something when they believe that the technology is enabling kids to learn without teachers?
1: You know, I don't. I mean, so, yes, but and and here I guess all I mean is, in most successful classrooms I've seen, you have three basic elements. You've got You've got teachers, you've got students, and you've got uh, instructional material. And it's, there's no doubt at all that that students a lot of the times can run faster than the teacher. There's also no doubt that not every student is capable of doing that or, or, or is interested in doing that. And so, you know, the model that we have is one which I would say is, uh, you, you know, it supports the classroom environment as it exists today, particularly in the developing world, where the teacher really does play. A very very significant leadership uh, role. So I don't know. I I guess I sort of have mixed feelings about that. I I sometimes feel that there's this view that says, well, teachers don't matter anymore because the technology can do it all. And and I don't actually think that's right. I think uh, I think there's actually a real leadership role and sort of an example setting role that teachers will continue to play for a long long time. And certainly the, the technology we're using, you know, it's not. In, in really by any stretch of the imagination to replace a teacher. Now, that said, I love the fact that our students are reading outside of classroom, and I love the fact that our teachers tell us, this is making my life better. It's making my life easier. My students have done their reading By the time I get there, I don't have to actually you know, simply recite what's in the book. I can take them beyond that. So I guess I see them
0: as more complementary than substitutes. You're getting positive response in the chat. Okay, so tell us about the financial model. A dollar per title, five dollars per title, a $79 Kindle device, and I'm guessing that based on the average wage per capita in these countries that these may seem like relatively small dollars to someone in the Western world, but they have got to be astoundingly high for others. So
1: uh, let me say a couple of different things about that, and if you don't mind, I'm going to flip through a couple of slides here. I actually remember where the slide is. You know, if you don't mind, Steve, let me take a slide or two more, and then I'll come to the economics there, and I'll make sure to get to exactly that question and give people a little bit more more context of where we're operating. Um, So the slide you're looking at here, these are the the um, the the countries where we are, and the places within the countries. And and to your point, I mean, we're operating in parts of the world where, uh, you know, the the GDP per capita, the annual income, uh, might be thousand dollars. Uh, you know, or less in, in, in some of these countries. But I will say that despite that, you know, Africa is developing a real middle class and and, and by a real middle class I mean a, a sizable middle class, hundreds of millions of people, you know, there are a billion people on the continent of Africa and you might say that 300 million of them are considered middle class in, in some way. Now this doesn't mean that they have an enormous amount of money but it probably means they have a cell phone and it almost certainly means that they value their children's education because they recognize that that's one of their ways forward. And so uh, I'll come back to the funding in a second, but one of the surprises for us is again that theft has been quite low and that when we talk to parents about would you be willing to actually pay for this at some point in the future, some of them say, you know what, yeah, we would pay for it the same way we pay for a cell phone. You know, we would pay a dollar a month, something like this, but we would be willing to pay for it in the way that we're... Uh, willing to, to pay for paper I'll bring this next slide up as well because it's kind of interesting and it gets me to exactly this point. This is literally mail. We, I got this mail January 2nd, so just a couple of days ago. But it's quite representative of the sort of mail we get uh, from around the world every day. And I'll read it here. It says, I'm interested in how much it would cost to provide Kindles for 1,500 students to learn in the classroom. And then they go on to ask some specific questions. What are the logistics? Um, how, do you, how do they keep charged? Uh, how do you get stories and so forth? But the reason I put this slide up is because we, are, our funding, you know, we are roughly 80% donor funded right now, and that's everyone from USAID uh, to uh, the Drake Richards Kaplan Foundation to individual donors. You know, I'm a donor myself, but also I'm, uh, some other early Amazon employees or donors, some Microsoft employees or donors. And then, of course, philanthropists all over the world are, are, are donors for us. That's about eighty percent. But about twenty percent comes from what we call program funding. So these are often schools. Sometimes they're sponsored schools. Sometimes they're they're, they're independent schools. Uh, but they're, they're almost always public schools. But they might have an independent financial sponsor, and they they'll pay us ten thousand dollars or fifteen thousand dollars to run the program in the school for them. So maybe more information than what you were specifically asking about. But 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 this, this idea that uh, you know donors can fund world reader and they do. It's very important to us. Uh, we can't be a nonprofit without donor funding and you have thousands of individual donors as well as some, some larger, corporate and, and, and sort of more philanthropic and foundation level donors. But we also have partners who pay for the program and, uh, and we like that quite a lot. It reduces our fundraising load a little bit, but more importantly it kind of it puts some, some skin in the game for, for, for people. And then I think I have a slide up here that talks a bit about our cost structure. I do. Look at that. So this was our budget uh, in 2012. So we, last year we raised about a, a little under a million and a half dollars. And we put about 300,000 ebooks in total into kids' hands. Um, this 300,000 actually will be the number by the end of uh, February of this year. So the simple math is it costs about $5 a book in total. And that's in total, total, right? So that includes the cost of the e-readers, the cost of shipping, the cost of lights, the cost of cases, uh, which are often donated. Um, The books, again, many of which are are donated. And and we expect to get to half a million books um, over the next couple of months. And and we're still quite young. So anyway, again, maybe much more information than you were were asking for. But we, we sort of like our economics quite a lot because technology keeps getting less and less expensive of course e-readers now cost 60 70 eighty dollars uh, where they used to cost a couple hundred dollars as we grow we get economies of scale in many different ways uh, and you know the fundamentals of, of digital technology uh, and, and digital books in particular means that over time they'll cost less than printed books and so we, we kind of like how that all comes together and then we like the fact that, that partners sometimes are willing to pay for this program because that Helps us uh, keep our the amount of time we spend on fundraising. So, we are
0: Are you pausing for me to feed you a question?
1: I think so. Yeah, I'm pausing to take a breath. <laughs> I realized that, that was a lot of
0: information. <laughs> so, if
1: you want to ask, so some of the question, yeah, go some
0: ahead. of the questions specifically were. Are the schools paying? Um, is there um, uh, um, i understand that it's five dollars per ebook when you sort of amortize everything out, but is there a dollar amount that a that a local school pays and and how are you choosing which schools to work with
1: all, so all great questions
0: so the
1: um, you know, I'll start with the the last one how are we choosing? In in some cases, we actively choose the schools ourselves. So, for example, in Ghana, we went to the government of Ghana, so the Ministry of Education, and we said, look, we've got a a big idea, and we'd love to test this out uh, in in Ghana. And after some back and forth, they said, that sounds like a great idea. We'd love to really be a test bed for you. And so right now, we're in six schools in Ghana, and uh, those are schools that the government actually chose for us. And they're the schools where we've done, I'll flip through a couple more slides here. They're the schools where we've done the most measurement and evaluation. We got a $100,000 grant from USAID, uh, which is the US bilateral agency, to test, uh, to see what happens to reading scores over the course of the year, uh, of the school year. And, and that we've done in Ghana because there we're working very closely with the government and we and got the authorization to do it with them and so forth. And you can see here, the effects. And and basically what happens is that kids' scores go up uh, about eight points more than they did in the control schools. But that's Ghana. So they're where we're we're very hands-on. In Kenya and Uganda and uh, Tanzania, all of those countries, those are schools that have come to us and have said, we'd like you to operate in our schools and, um, and, and, and we'll even pay you. And the, the cost of a we call it a word reader kit, which has about 50 e readers in it, which translates to about 5,000 bo- yeah 5,000 books, which is enough for you know a, a good sized classroom. Um, that, the cost of that is about $10,000, and that's something that the school typically pays. Now, again, some of these schools have even though they're public schools, they have, they have private sponsors in some cases. Um, so it's really a, a blend of all of the above. In some cases you know, we choose the school uh, when we want to do measurement and evaluation. In other cases the school chooses us and then we evaluate to see whether the school was a good candidate because of course they have to have a certain element structure. They've got to have someone who wants to uh, sponsor the program financially but also operationally. You know, there's there's got to be a teacher who's ready to, uh, to learn how to kind of administer this program. And then we work with them. In fact, we have a whole area of our website, which is, um, and we have a whole group of people who are sort of account managers, and, and their job is to help support, uh, support these programs. And that, that picture a couple of slides ago of the 800 and some uh, e-readers, they were getting ready for a new um, kits program we, we have where we're sending those out to different schools across sub-Saharan Africa.
0: David, are there other benefits that are harder to measure but that you feel are are taking place beyond sort of um, English language test scores, are you finding that there are other ways in which this has impact that you uh, you like to notice but may not be measurable through a standardized test?
1: There are. And, and this is one of the-actually, in fact, I have, I have a slide on a couple of them that came up through this ILC report. Um, and, and I can mention these guys. You know, these are on the slide. Everything from, uh, you know, the the fact that families can share in in reading and and, and so forth. And and you'll hear. I've got a video in a, in a little bit that we can uh, listen to that shows the topic that where you hear some of the teachers and the students talking about the effect it's had in their life. I'll say it's actually it's it's really quite remarkable though the 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 difference that all of a sudden having access to a real uh, almost a portable library has is i mean as you say, it goes well beyond just you know what happens to your your test scores. all of a sudden, you know one of the, the kids in our program um, actually i actually have a, a picture of her a little later in the presentation, her name is Okkansa Kate, and she has read well over a hundred books in our program over the last eighteen months. And that's just a night and day, you know, sort of a quantum change from what she'd had access to before. And now her stated goal is to become the most famous writer in the world. That to me is just remarkable. It's absolutely remarkable. And that's not, I mean, of course, her scores are going off nicely and she's doing well at school. But really the benefit there is uh, that, that her horizons have been, her, her eyes have been opened to, to her possibilities. So that's a sort of an aspirational, almost a societal level if you, if you sort of you know, aggregate that up across hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of students. You also see some very small things that are, I just think, absolutely fascinating. I mean, you see kids, literally, if they're, when their teachers are not in the classroom, you see kids breaking out their e-readers and reading on their own, which is fantastic to see. You see boys coming up to you and saying, you know what, books always used to intimidate me. But, I like reading on this because it's a sort of a, it's almost a toy it's almost a gadget you know i, I just uh, I, I enjoy um, uh, using it in a way that that I always was intimidated by by books. Another very subtle thing is uh, you know the kids in a lot of our programs no surprise don't have very good eyesight now you know in the United States you don't have good eyesight, you go get classes well guess what they don't have money for classes and so uh, the fact that you can make the font bigger, or the fact that you can turn on text to speech and sound out words that you, you couldn't otherwise sound out, um, and, and your parents don't know because again they they likely don't know how to read, you know these are these are you know tiny little things that you don't really spend a lot of time thinking about. But then when you see over and over again the kids being able to read in a way that they, they clearly could not have read before. Uh, having these leaders, it really is quite, uh, it's really, really, really quite remarkable. And then the last thing I'll say is that the teachers tell us that one of the things they love is not only does it, it, it make the kids feel special uh, and it gives the kids a little bit of an introduction to technology because of course, you know, the schools don't have computer labs so this for them is kind of another step into kind of the computing world. But they like the fact that the teachers uh, have access to all these books that the teachers didn't have before, including teachers' guides. And what the schools are telling us is that this is allowing them to attract better teachers, right? Because all of a sudden, it's a it's a benefit to, to teaching at one of these schools. So, I mean, look, I don't want to say this is a magic bullet to all of life's problems, you know. And our program, we, we have challenges just like any other program does. But but there is something very very nice to see the uptake that this has had, the excitement that the teachers and the students have. And the genuine enthusiasm, and and frankly, just the the pure number of books that these kids are reading, uh, it just puts what they were able to do in the past, um, frankly, kind of to shame. It puts puts everything kind of at a a new level.
0: So Larry Ferlazzo is a name you probably don't know, but he's a teacher in Sacramento, California. And he's been on the show a couple of times. And he started a take-home computer program for the Hmong population there. And showed really measurable gains in literacy amongst the family members in addition to the students. That's sort of stunning to me and to think about the impact here on the families of your students as well it's It's really pretty extraordinary what happens at the family level. There's actually been some
1: pretty good research on this that suggests that uh, and this, this is this, this research predates our work, but it suggests that just having books in the household is roughly in something like 50 books in the household is roughly equivalent to having one of the parents uh, have gone to university. In other words, having books is roughly you know if you're went to university, great. If you didn't go to university but you have books, that's roughly the same sort of equivalent educational load. And um, and then and then what ends up happening is, you know, it's not just the kids that benefit. The whole family ends up uh, benefiting from sort of the shared knowledge of this. And as I say, one of the wonderful things was listening to the parents talk about how excited they are to have their kids be reading to each other and back to them. So these things, again, I I don't, I really, I I sometimes find myself, you know, kind of getting so excited that I I probably sound a little bit, you know, over-enthusiastic about it. But I really do think, you know, there's so many problems in the world that when you sort of peel back the onion and look at it, realize that if you have a, a more educated population, ultimately, maybe not tomorrow or the day after tomorrow, but in you know months, years, and certainly within a generation, you will really, really change the world.
0: I know I come from a biased position. I run an interview series largely based on books, but it seems to me that in my own personal study the conversation after reading the book is as critical as the actual reading of the book. Are there ways that you're seeing good practice or encouraging certain practices around kind of the, the sharing of knowledge that takes place after the reading?
1: So that's a great point. And, and frankly, that's an area where you know we all have more work to do. And what I mean by that is these are classrooms that typically they've had to share textbooks uh, and they have very, very little sort of leisure reading, you know, pleasure reading. Most of the reading that happens in the classroom is textbook reading. And therefore, when we come in, again, we have textbooks in our program and the textbooks are very useful to the teachers immediately. But a lot of the times the teachers don't really have a very good model for stimulating those sorts of conversations that you're talking about. And the students don't have really a model for that either. And we've been I don't know if surprise is quite the right word, but, but we've, certainly, we've certainly noticed that. So one of the things we do now is we have we call them uh, out of classroom uh, experiences, OCE. And they typically take place on Saturday. And they're, they're really kind of reading groups, book groups that so we put together with, own, with volunteers that are in the market. Uh, a lot of the times they're, they're university students uh, in Accra or in the capital city of whatever country we're working in. And they'll come out and read with the kids and then just talk to the kids. But I will tell you that's an area where we're really just beginning to get uh, educated ourselves and we work with a foundation in Ghana called the Olinga Foundation that's been doing literacy work for years and, uh, and, and we're doing something similar in, in Kenya with a group called RTI and I think that's going to be kind of our next level of learning ourselves is how to make sure that, of course, for bright kids and for kids with, um, with, with for whatever reason, sort of deep levels of motivation, it kind of comes naturally. But I think that type of conversation, you're thinking of, Steve, unfortunately, it's still relatively rare for for kids to be able to have those sorts of deeper conversations about things they've read, uh, just because they they just don't have the practice.
0: So Christy asked a question which isn't directly related to this. I'm going to give it to you, but if you'd like to defer it, you're welcome to. She Mm -hmm. wants to know, if you could describe what you believe to be critical for the future of, the, of future of education in North America, maybe based on some things you've seen in this work,
1: you know, I have to say, I do, I mean, I have of course I have opinions about it um, based on my own experience and and, you know, and my own kids and so forth, but it's it's funny, it's not an area I really feel expert in by any means, and it's. Uh, I guess I'll 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 address it maybe by sort of flipping the question around a little bit uh, and then maybe I can come back to it. But people sometimes ask me, how come you're not doing the same work in, in the United States? And which I which of course is a very fair question. But my answer is that the the, the sort of the, the almost the business person in me wants to go where the impact is the greatest, where the where the bang for the buck is the greatest. And the need in the developing world for books is so large that you can see as soon as you start satisfying that need, there's an almost insatiable appetite for more. Whereas the, the sense that I get about the education system in the United States is, is not that, it's, that lack of books is really holding, by and large, of course this is a generalization and I know there are pockets where this isn't true, but, but lack of access to books hasn't been a fundamental inhibitor. To, to sort of strong education in the United states um, uh, and and therefore our program wouldn't maybe have the same impact because uh, because it, it doesn't satisfy that 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 need in quite the same way now that leads to an answer to the question you're asking which is well okay you know if it's not lack of books then what is it and the, I, honestly I'm not really sure I'm the right person that that may be one where I have to come back to another one of your seminars and listen to someone else's uh, point of view on that. I mean, I, I can tell you my own experience, and I can tell you what I've heard other people say, but I don't know that my direct experience uh, is, is is so relevant
0: there. Fair enough. So Laura uh, discusses the fact that there's a bonus to any book reader that if you're not interested in something, you can just switch to a different book, which brings us to this issue of uh, choice and the quantity of books available. Is there, have you discovered any correlation between the number of titles on an e-book reader and the value to the reader? Is there a point at which too many titles becomes too confusing, or does that even matter?
1: So that's a great, great point, and that's absolutely one of the things we've been learning about ourselves. So we originally put, uh, let's say, 150 books, to use a round number, on all once. And we did find, exactly to your point, that it actually was a bit overwhelming to some students. And so now what we tend to do is, first of all, we categorize them much better. But second of all, we, we put new books onto the e-reader typically every couple of weeks. We do something which we call a push, so where we literally push out new books. And then remember also the students can choose books on their own. So one of the nice things about the Kindle the, the is because it uses the 3G, you know, the GSM network, the cell phone network. The kids can literally go in and get first chapters and samples uh, just the same way that you and I can. And they can get free books. And at any point in time, there are thousands of free books available to them. And then we can actually look at that data in the aggregate and use that to try to figure out what books the kids are more interested in. By the way, they also like the active content, uh, the word games and flashcards and so forth and so on. So we're sort of trying to titrate there. You know, we, we don't want to put too few on because that's not interesting, but we don't want to put so many on that it's intimidating right from the start. We want to sort of get it just right. And we found that if we, about 100 books, which is still, of course, quite a big number, but if we put about 100 books on categorized, some U.S. books, some local textbooks, some local storybooks, um, that that's, that feels about right. And, and, and the, the, the schools uh, have a huge say in that. You know, of course, we have our recommendations based on what we've seen work in other schools, but we also ask the school, "What would you like?" And I'll tell you that uh, one of the really interesting things that happens is, you know, the students when they first open the e-reader, the first turn it on, they'll see these books. For example, one of the girls in our program in Uganda looked at, at uh, a book called *The Blue Marble* by a Ugandan author, and she looked up and she said, "You know what? I don't even think I knew that Ugandans." Local uh, books, because up until then the only books that she had seen had been imported books, books from uh, from outside of Uganda, and so it's 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 really quite interesting and, and frankly sort of startling to see uh, what the kids respond to, and and then once you hear something like that, then you say, oh my God, we've got to go and find more Ugandan authors and make sure that their books are digitized and put them in the program as well, so that the kids can read uh, their own authors instead of just uh, imported books.
0: One of the Pieces of information I gleaned today was, at some point, you used some fairly well-known soccer players to um, interest or involve the kids in getting into the books. I, was it, maybe it was pictures on the screens or something. How much? Right. How much do you feel that you need to do that kind of social marketing for the program?
1: You know, that's another great question, and, and actually, it leads me. I want to show you the video as well briefly because. Um, just coincidentally one of the, uh, the, the kids in the, in the video wants to be a, a football player or a soccer player himself. You know, um, I guess the short answer is we want to do whatever it takes to get kids excited about reading and create a real culture of reading. Now to a certain extent, as we were saying before, just putting the books on the e-reader uh, teaching the students and teaching the teachers. Already, that gets you, you know, let's say seventy percent of the way there. But I know that in, in from my days at Amazon. I, I guess I didn't mention too much about my own background, but I was the vice president of marketing and merchandising at Amazon for many years. When I joined the company, it was a very small company. It was about a sixteen million dollar company back in 1996, this uh, was January of '97, actually, uh, just a bookstore, and uh, and and. And my and the reason I joined, by the way, of course I love books, uh, I always have, uh, and I've been working at Microsoft for many years, and so I thought this was a great way to bring two of my passions together: books and technology. But in any case, Jeff Bezos, you know, brought me in his office during the interview, and he said, "Look, we want to create where you, uh, a place where you can find and discover anything you want to buy online, and uh, that was going to include video and music and toys and tools, and electronics, and you know, everything." And, uh, and and that's what he hired me to do. That was my, my job for many years there. And when I when I left, it was about a four billion dollar company. So we grew up quite a bit. But what I learned through that process is that changing people's behavior is really quite hard. You know, people have habits, and and if there's no culture of reading. Then you've got to make it easier and easier, and more and more exciting, and less and less expensive uh, to read. And you have to do all of those things. If you only do one or two of those things, you, you might not get there. But if you do all three—if you make it easy, and you make it, make it relatively inexpensive—you uh, know—and and of course you provide the you know great selection of content, with great books themselves—you've got a shot at it. So to your point, Steve, yeah, we we um, formed a relationship with a football club of Barcelona um, about you know, six months ago, I guess. And they allowed us uh, to use images of some of their most famous players including Lionel Messi, who's probably the most uh, the best known soccer player in the world, on the e-readers. And the reason and, and and we do it in a way that they're personalized for the kids, and they have messages for the kids about reading, every book is a goal, and so on and so forth. And the reason we do it is, yeah. Again, it's it's to appeal to you know to some kids for whom you know, books are naturally exciting. Uh, there are other books. There are other kids for whom it takes a little bit more, and, and that's something that we're experimenting with just to see uh,
0: kind of how it works. So we have about three minutes left. If we show the video, my guess is then as, as a courtesy, we always finish on time. If we show the video, okay. my guess is we're going to be out of time. We can put mm-hmm. the link to the video in. Or if you'd like to end on the video, I'd be quite happy to pull it up. No, you know, what? let's
1: let's why don't we put the link to the video in, and instead I'll just uh, and and the other thing I'll do, particularly because my director of communications will kill me if I don't, is I'll put this slide up, uh, which tells everyone you know how to you know, to come to of you can come to our website directly worldreader.org, Or to follow us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. There's also my own uh, Twitter feed there. And there you'll find all sorts of videos and pictures and stories and, and everything else. There's, there's uh, an enormous amount of information, and we try to be really quite active about sharing uh, what works and also what doesn't work because we know, you know, we're not going to be the only people in the world to come up with this idea. Uh, we just think we're uh, we're, we're doing some uh, some good in the world by sharing information and by getting kids more books. So we, we try to share as much information as possible.
0: And there are lots of videos on the website. Again, I put the link in, but I'm going to put it in here again. It's uh, worldreader.org, right? That's right. It, why is it plural in the tweet, in the Twitter, hashtag, the Twitter <laughs> handle? Uh,
1: well, only because someone else has the, the at worldreader uh, ah, uh, Twitter handle. So
0: Don't you hate that?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, when that happens, but I will.
0: There's so much we didn't get to, but uh, it's very nice that you have so much of the story up on the website. So if you're interested, uh, worldreader.org. There's lots and lots that will keep you busy, as it did me for several hours. Uh, I really want to thank David for coming on the show. David, that was really terrific.
1: Yeah, well, I really enjoyed it, Steve. And, uh, you know, honestly, as you can probably tell, I'm, I'm passionate about this and, uh, and and can talk for hours. So if, uh, if folks on this conference want to send me a piece of email uh, and have a follow-up question, I'm David at WorldReader.org. Uh, you know, I will also say I'm not always the best at, at uh, answering email. I think Steve, it took you a couple of tries to get this uh, going. But so if I don't respond, um, don't take it personally. Just send me another note, and uh, and I appreciate everyone's interest. I
0: really do. Uh, a huge fan of Microsoft Access. It was a big, significant part of my life. I'm a huge financial supporter of Amazon.com. You're living the life I would like to live. Thank you. <laughs> 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 At least I know it's possible. <laughs> <laughs> Very kind of you.
1: Well, thank you for your support, Stephen. Thanks to, uh, thanks to all of your, uh, your participants, your, uh, your, your community as well. Really, really great to see the work you're doing.
0: Thanks everybody for being here. Don't miss tomorrow night our conversation on Google Plus communities and educational networking in general. And then uh, next week, um, student journalism as 21st century curriculum. Lots more coming up. Thanks to David. Thanks all of you for attending. Have a good night or day depending on where you are. Bye now. Take
1: care everyone.